Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 5. Proverbs 5. It is good to see you this morning. We are thankful that uh, we have a good number here in the building and a number of visitors with us. We want you to feel welcome. We are glad that you're here. Appreciate you taking time out of your week and out of your day to join with us in worship to God and in study of God's Word. Uh, For those who are joining us online, we also want to say welcome to you. Thank you for being with us. We're just encouraged that so many are interested in the things of God. I, uh, with regard to what Ryan just said, I think sometimes it's fun to try to keep my song leaders on their toes uh, by giving them topics that it's almost impossible to um, keep any songs with. So uh, that will certainly be the case this morning, as you'll see shortly. I want to begin by reading in Proverbs 5 and verse 1. It says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So Solomon in Proverbs often addresses the reader as son, and he warns his son here about the forbidden woman. And like many of the Proverbs, the forbidden woman represents a danger that is not apparent. She sounds good and she looks good, but she is most certainly not good. He says, her path is the path to Sheol. Her feet go down to death. Often the strange woman is married. And so if you have a heading in your Bible like I do, the the heading will say something like a warning against adultery. Pursuing her represents adultery. I want to take a few minutes this morning and I want to ask a particular question that a passage like this raises for me. And that is, why does adultery happen? And immediately I want to stress that adultery doesn't happen because we don't know it's wrong. You can look at all kinds of surveys. I did some of this this week. Even in a time like ours that is full of so much sexual permissiveness and confusion, people still believe overwhelmingly that adultery is wrong. There was a survey done in 2013 of Americans. At that point in 2013, which is some time back now, 59% of Americans said that homosexual activity was fine, morally permissible. And yet only 6% of Americans in that survey believed that adultery was morally permissible. That is a staggering number in the climate in which we live. For people to still believe, overwhelmingly, 94% of you and me and our friends and neighbors in America believe adultery is wrong. And yet it still happens. And it still happens among Christians. Christians who not only share the, the common societal view that it's wrong, but also know that the Bible teaches it's wrong. A few years back, I was preaching at a congregation where we had several affairs among Christians in the congregation. And and in addressing that as a preacher, we we started asking the question, well, obviously we need to talk about this, but what should we say? After all, it's not as if these people don't know. It's not as if you can say, hey, adultery is wrong. Stop doing it. There is something deeper going on. If our society knows it's wrong and Christians know it's wrong, why does it happen? And I want to stress that this is not a mere intellectual exercise. In fact, as I put that word on the board and I put this home with this disaster going through it, I think that many of us know firsthand exactly what that means. Many people in this room have had their worlds rocked by infidelity. 
marriages that are shaken and sometimes completely broken. Sometimes people who begin with adultery just leave the Lord and never come back. And so we just don't see them again. They're done. And we have to begin to ask the question, well, how does that happen? Why does that happen? And there is a danger in addition to the pain. The pain that adultery causes touches all of us. But the danger is that we will look at situations like those and say things like, well, I would never do anything like that. That would never happen to me or in my family or in my home. We see it as something that is so improper and so scandalous, so beyond the pale, that it's something that definitely a person that would do this must just be some kind of monster. And we don't see in that that we could be guilty as well. So what I want to do for a few minutes this morning is talk about why adultery happens and let this warning motivate us to fight the real problem which is not really knowing that something is right or wrong, but being careful lest we get into a position where this seems like a good idea. So you can see why Ryan had trouble finding good songs. Let's talk about that. Why does adultery happen? First of all, it happens because we get frustrated in our marriage. I want you to look with me down in Proverbs 5 and verse 15. A little further down, as Solomon is giving advice to his son, Proverbs 5.15, he says, Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So after warning his son about adultery, that passage we read a moment ago, here is some practical advice. And he says in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. I trust that you understand that cisterns and wells and waters and fountains in this text are metaphors for the sexual desire and the sexual relationship. He is saying when God has allowed you to have a wife, focus on your wife, let that be what it should be, what God intends it to be in terms of meeting your needs. Because God did give marriage to meet needs for men and women. Sexual needs, companionship needs, the need for romantic love, those things are appropriately filled and met in marriage. And so he says, focus on that. Focus on what God has given you. So let's pursue that for just a minute. That means that God intends, when God sees man in the Garden of Eden and says it's not good that man should be alone, he creates woman and he brings her to her. And there is a reason why the first thing God says after that is about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife to meet that need that it's not good for man to be alone. God creates marriage in order to meet the needs. When God does this with David, he talks to David. When David pursues Bathsheba and commits adultery with Bathsheba, you remember how God sends Nathan to him to tell him the story. David, you're like the rich man who has all kinds of flocks and herds and yet who goes and takes the one ewe lamb of this poor man. You've got all these wives. He has one wife. The only woman in the kingdom that would be off limits to David would be a woman who was already married. Anybody else he could find and bring in and marry them. And yet he takes the one off-limits woman he could find. And this is what God says about this. God says to David, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. See, God is saying, 
I want this to be a blessing to you. It's not as if, David, you don't have what you need. That's not the problem here. Something else is going on. You are not satisfied with what I've already given you. But often things change in a marriage, don't they? We get frustrated. Frustrations grow over time. And we get to where we're not as satisfied as God intends for us to be in a marriage. That's the reason for this advice in Proverbs 5. Be sure that you are pursuing in your marriage what needs to be pursued, that you are meeting your needs and focusing on your mate. That's why God gave them to you so that that could be a relationship that is fruitful and helpful and beneficial for both of you. Sometimes our mates are frustrating. Sometimes we read passages like these. This is 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And we talk about and, and often I'll talk about this with husbands, and you guys know this, I'll talk about it from the pulpit, that, that husbands need to be understanding and need to show honor to their wives. But what if they don't? What if they're not what they should be, and they're not pursuing that, and a wife says, I'm not being honored, I'm, he doesn't even try to understand me, there's nothing about this that represents my husband. Or 1 Corinthians 7, 5, we'll look at this in a minute. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, what if we do deprive one another? What if we see that command and we just ignore it and we do our own thing? Now, obviously, we could say, well, that's that's disobeying what Scripture teaches. That's true. But what do we do? If someone decides, our mate decides, they're not going to follow Scripture. What do we do? when things aren't ideal. One of the things I want to point out is that what makes these passages that teach us the parameters of marriage, our responsibilities in marriage, one of the things that makes those passages so important is that we cause tremendous heartache for our mate when we don't treat them well. It becomes a problem in the marriage. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that if someone treats us poorly, we're justified in committing adultery. I don't believe that, and I am not saying that. However, I am saying that if we don't actually examine our role in what we are doing to cause frustration for our mate, then we are setting ourselves up and our mate up for a lot of pain. I suspect I don't need to belabor this, how we get frustrated in our marriage. I think we know this. I think those who have been married for some time understand. But let me just give you some examples and some ideas here. Maybe we fail to communicate at all with our spouse. We just sort of lapse into the um, tacit acknowledgement of one another. Hey, hey, what you doing? Good to see you. Have a good day. Talk to you tomorrow. And slowly we lose some of the passion in which the marriage and the relationship began. We fail to stay close and the fire starts to fade a little bit. We get busy in our own things. We age and we drift apart as we age. Or maybe we get disappointed in each other. You know, she's not doing what I thought she would do. He's not becoming the man I thought he would become. We disappoint each other. Sometimes we lie to each other. We fight with each other. And sometimes it's just like the weight of years of being together can just become a little too much. And we get frustrated and we just say, man, maybe a fresh start would be good. And so in the frustration in our marriage, the groundwork is laid for what will later become adultery. 
So what we need to see here is that God intends a vibrant marriage to be an antidote for adultery. That's God's intention. So he says, and Solomon says this specifically, focus on your mate, be intoxicated with your mate. God wants us to avoid adultery, not because we're told no, but to avoid adultery because we are happy with where we are. But adultery can happen or at least begin when we get frustrated in our marriage. Second, adultery happens because we lack self-control. Look in verse 15 again, Proverbs 5 and verse 15. The text says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your streams be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Self-control in this context is about focusing on one person to the exclusion of everyone else. And you see that in the text. Don't let your streams be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. Your desire, your interest is not just for everyone. You have to say there are limits to this. And, and can I just say it this way? That's true for everybody. Nobody can just let their sexual desire run free. Eventually, problems start because there are limits. What we are saying, though, is God intends for us to set limits that focus our attention on one person alone. Self-control is the idea here. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 7. I told you we'd talk a little more detail about this a moment ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, I will remind you that this is a little bit of a different perspective on marriage than what happens in the rest of Scripture. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, is giving some opinions. For one, they are Paul's opinions. For two, they are based on what he calls the present distress, in which marriage is, in his opinion, not a great idea because there are some persecution problems that arise from being too closely tied to any one person. But I want you to see how Paul speaks of the issue of self-control in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. It says, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's a lot to unpack here. I think, as I've already said, Paul is a single man and he sees great advantage in his singleness. But he acknowledges, he says in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, marriage is good. Each person should have their own husband or wife. Marriage is helpful because of the temptation to sexual immorality, he says specifically. But then, in verse 5, he warns them, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he says, you be careful about depriving one another sexually because of your lack of self-control. Do you know what that means? That means that marriage does not automatically give us self-control, including in sexual matters. This is a common misconception. I have especially seen it among young male Christians. The idea is... You know, I may be, in growing up, I may be a little out of control, 
in the way I'm looking and thinking, the things I do on the internet, the women that I'm around. I may be a little out of control, but when I get married, then everything, it's, it's like I finally made it and everything will just work out happily ever after. And so we drag this whole long history of being out of control sexually into a marriage. Marriage doesn't somehow magically bestow us with self-control. Paul says you be careful even in a marriage that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what we see then, I want to remind you that this passage is bracketed by two places, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 and 13, and 1 Corinthians 9, and verse 27, where Paul specifically says that we need to be developing self-control and be a people of self-control. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, you be careful because of your lack of self-control. Here's what I'm trying to say by mentioning that. Paul wants us to be at, at the same time growing towards self-control and honest and open about the fact that sometimes we lack it and we need to be preparing for how we're going to deal with our lack of it. So in 1 Corinthians 7, the issue is you discipline yourself and you set yourself up for success by using your marriage and managing your marriage in a way that's going to help you because you may not have the self-control you think you do. Go with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, and as we break this down, we'll, we'll begin to transition into what exactly we mean by some of the areas of self-control that we need to work on. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, in verse 3, he talks about the will of God is your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there is the line. God wants us to be sexually pure. But it's not just that. It's not that God just wants you to not cross certain lines. Verse 4, this is also God's will that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. God's will is that we have the self-control to say, there are things I will do and not do, and I am always in control of that. I can control my body. And that is a process of growth that Christians are intended to go through as they follow Jesus. That is a fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit leaves in our lives as we follow His leading. This is an area we must work on. And if we lack it, bad things can happen. In fact, he says specifically in verse 5, no, I want verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, which to me implies that there was a danger of adultery among Christians. And that we are wronging our brother by doing things with their wives and, and wives with others' husbands. And so we end up not controlling ourselves and causing tremendous damage to one another. He says the Lord is an avenger in those cases, which to me is a chilling reminder that God is watching how we act in our sexual relationships toward one another. So God's will is our sanctification, that we know how to control ourselves in holiness and honor, and that is an ongoing project. 
I want to just take a moment and sketch some of the dimensions of self-control we're talking about that will help us to avoid a major misstep like adultery. First of all, self-control involves how we think. We learn to discipline how we think. So this is Proverbs 6.25. He says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. The, The idea here is that this involves the heart. We see something, and we want it. And so in that wanting, there is a danger. So he says, Stop the wanting. Don't desire it. That may be something that we have to learn to discipline the way that we think. I don't mean that any thought that enters our mind, we have to somehow say, no, that's, that's not right. I'm not going to do that. But instead, there is a way that we say, I'm not going to involve myself in continually thinking about things that should not be thought about. We need to tell ourselves no, because some thoughts don't need to be entertained. We lack self-control sometimes in how we look. Jesus points this out. He says in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says adultery begins with hearts, and adultery proceeds with looks. In other words, he is just eradicating the excuse that we have. That, you know, well, I didn't do anything. I haven't gone all the way with this. And he is saying, no, but you did. You have committed adultery with her in your heart because you are looking at her with this heart of full desire. The look and the thought work together. So we discipline our looking. Some things just don't need to be looked at. And we don't need to look at others in ways that are going to incite lust. So when we lack self-control about how we think and how we look, suddenly there are all kinds of emotions and thoughts and looks that we are doing that are leading us in a direction of adultery, maybe before a temptation ever presents itself. But if we lack self-control in these areas, then we are moving away from God. A third is in how we interact. This is Proverbs 5.8, talking about the, the strange or immoral woman. He says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Proverbs 7.8, he talks about a young man passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. Where are we going and what are we doing? You see, when these young men enter into the radius of someone like this, it's just a matter of time. And you can see it in those stories in Proverbs They've already made the decision because where they are going, they're going for one reason. So the question I want us to ask is, how do we interact with those of the opposite sex? What kinds of conversations are we having? Are there lines that we don't cross? Are there topics that we don't bring up? Are we criticizing our spouse to someone else of the opposite sex? What exactly are we doing in our interactions with others? And is there something there That is less than noble. We lack self-control in how we regularly control our bodies. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, I discipline my body. There is a regular practice for Paul of telling his body no. It seems to me that we are not very good at this in our culture and in our time. We live in a culture and a time where we have so much 
money, so much time, so much opportunity, so much freedom, that pretty much anything our body wants, we could probably find a way to get it. And so it is very countercultural to begin to tell yourself no. Just go to the supermarket when you're hungry. Just walk through one of those aisles as you're approaching the, and, and there are so many different things that you just want to, it's just so easy. And to learn to tell ourselves no, to learn to say, no, I'm not going to give in to this distraction. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to do that thing. That is a rare thing, but we must learn to control our bodies regularly. That is what self-control is. But if we don't learn self-control in how we think and how we look and how we interact and how we control our bodies, you can see what's going to happen if we're out of control and then we're frustrated in our marriage then we are ripe for a temptation to take us away from God and from our mate. How does adultery happen? Third, we begin to look around. So in our progression, we're talking about someone who's frustrated in their marriage, discontent, weak, angry, insecure, and our attention turns outward. We start to look around. Sometimes, And this is true both biblically and in experience. Sometimes a certain person or situation comes up at just that moment where our frustration and our desire and our lack of self-control, they all converge at one moment and a failure takes place. This is David with Bathsheba. Where just at the right moment, just the right thing, and David is in the right frame of mind and everything falls to pieces for him. But sometimes we go out searching for just anyone. It's not a single person. We're just looking for something to make us feel better about all the things that are upsetting and frustrating and disappointing us. I want to show you that in Proverbs chapter 7. Let's go back to the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 7 and verse 6, Proverbs 7 and verse 6, he says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man, lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. I want you to notice what she says to him in verse 14. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, And I have found you. The irony here to me as I read this text is that the young man is looking for this woman, but this woman doesn't seem interested in him. She's looking for just anyone. She acts like she is. Oh, it's all about you. It's all about you. But they're just looking, both man and woman, for a good time. They begin to look around. And it is only a matter of time before they find what they're looking for. The problem here is the wandering eye. The idea that I am going to begin to evaluate other people as potential partners. Other people become sexual objects. Other people become providers of what I feel like I'm missing. I can finally find, here is a person who listens to me. Here is a person who pays me attention. Here is a person who respects me. Here is a person who finds me attractive. And suddenly, what we've been looking for comes because we are looking around instead of focusing on our mate and our marriage. There is a reason why. When God gives the Ten Commandments and he talks about 
coveting. He says specifically, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You know, it's interesting to me that when I did some research about this, over half of all affairs occur with someone the person knows well, like a close friend, and another third occur with someone who is somewhat well-known, like a neighbor, the article said specifically, or a co-worker. Do you think God may have known what he was talking about when he says, don't covet your neighbor's wife? Don't start looking around. There's nothing good that comes from it. This is yet another reason why pornography is particularly poisonous in a marriage. Because what pornography does is train you to think that sex should be constantly available with no commitment, with no investment, just because you want something. You begin to say, well, if I can't get it here, I'll just look around. And nothing good comes from looking around. So let me say it this way. This should be a warning sign to us when we start enjoying the attention of others and we start feeling attraction to others. We need to be very self-aware and very humble and very honest at that moment because danger is brewing. And finally, why does adultery happen? It happens because we fail to consider the consequences. You know, when Joseph is presented with the opportunity for adultery, do you remember what he says? His mind is only on consequences. He says, first of all, my, my master, he has given all this into my hand and there's nothing in this house that he hasn't given to me except you. He's thinking, what's going to happen to my job when he finds out about this? Which, by the way, was wise because his master finds out pretty quick. And then he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is thinking clearly because Joseph is thinking about consequences. This is an amazing thing that we do things that are life-altering, knowing they are wrong and knowing the damage they do, and yet we continue down the path because we refuse in that moment to think about where the path leads. So here you have David, who sees Bathsheba and has so many opportunities to say, you know what, this is wrong. Obviously, there's when he sees her, he can say, no, this isn't, this isn't right. And then he asks about her. He finds out, well, no, she's spoken for somebody else's wife. And then he sends for her and brings her to him. Still, as this is all happening, time to consider, time to consider. What's going to happen when everybody in Jerusalem, including all your servants, know what's happened? What's going to happen when her husband finds out, who, by the way, Uriah is some kind of awesome warrior, we're not thinking about that. We're not thinking about the kingdom. We're not thinking what happens if she gets pregnant. We're not thinking about any of the consequences. There is a reason that when Solomon warns his son about adultery, over and over again, he talks about, think about what will happen next. I want to show you that. Proverbs chapter 2. We're just going to look through several places here talking about consequences. Proverbs 2 and verse 16 so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths go to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 5. Proverbs 5 and verse 5 says, Her feet go down to death. 
Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Verse 8. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your laborers go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. In chapter six of Proverbs, Proverbs six and verse 27. This section focuses on uh, having to deal with the husband of the, uh, the woman that you've been with. Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold. He'll give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will, not ex- he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. You're gonna get yourself, son, in a position where you can't make him happy and you can't undo what you've done. But the most vivid part is in Proverbs 7 verse 22 to me. It says, Proverbs seven twenty-two. all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Death, shame, regret, injury, untold problems. And the image that is so vivid to me is like an ox going to the slaughter or like a bird that flies into a snare, doesn't even realize what's happening until it's too late. Sadly, I have even known some who have committed adultery and even after they did it, they did not realize the magnitude of what they had done and continued to live in denial about it. They still think that nothing has changed, that nothing that evil has been done, that there's no problem, that their relationships are gonna be fine that there is no damage to them or their reputation. Something is deeply sick in that heart. What is happening here when we fail to consider the consequences is that there is a failure at the point of temptation. We let the heart and the body make the decision and we ignore the consequences. In that moment, what we think is that no one will ever know. What we think is not about the hurt and the betrayal we're going to cause, We're not thinking about our disgrace. We're not thinking about our children. We're not thinking about our legacy. We're not thinking about our future. We're not thinking about Jesus. We're not thinking about our witness to the community. We are thinking only about what we feel and what we want. We fail to consider, how did I even get here? Why am I even considering this? Instead, We just march onward like the ox to the slaughter. Proverbs 5 and verse 12 says, At the end of your life you groan. And in verse 12 you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. One of the most tragic things to me is is that he's describing somebody who knew better. And to say when you've ruined your life, you know, I knew better than this. 
This is not a danger nobody warned me about. I just refused to listen. I was just too stubborn to save my own life. Why does adultery happen? We get frustrated. We lack self-control. We begin to look around. We fail to consider the consequences. The reason I preach this, and the reason I preach this in this form, is because I think those four points are something we can all do. We all get frustrated. We all, from time to time, lack self-control. We all sometimes look around, and we all sometimes fail to consider consequences. All of us. And so we can all commit adultery. It would be so tragic if we listen to this and we, we look down on others who have committed this sin instead of honestly considering our own hearts and lives and relationships. I don't want this to happen again. We're going to face these things. The question is, what will we do then? I have had the unfortunate experience of being able to watch firsthand as men have completely destroyed their lives, their families, their careers, and yes, their lives. Sometimes, in one case in particular I'm thinking of, for a woman that a year later they were no longer even interested in. And if you could see what I have seen in that, there would be no debate. You would not wonder, oh, is this a good thing? Sometimes, is, is this about love? And, and sometimes people deserve to be able to move on. You would have no question. You would have no excuse. And I know that you have seen more than I have seen in some circumstances. But my concern is that we would feel that we would never do that. In fact, sometimes I feel like we say things like, I can't understand how someone would ever do that. I don't feel that way at all. And the reason I preach it this way is because I want us to understand. It is because I, am understand, I understand that I am frightened of it. It is because I understand exactly how it could happen and I understand exactly how it could happen to me. It is an understanding that we learn humility to say, this could be me. For those who have committed adultery, I want you to know there is grace for you. And I want you to know that we want to help no matter what you've done for you to come back to the Lord and try to restore your life with him and in whatever way you can to restore the relationships that have been damaged by what you've done. But for those who have not, let's take this warning for what it is. That we need to be focused on and working on our marriages now. And that we need to be developing self-control now. And that we need to be keeping our eyes and our thoughts in the right place now. And we need to consider the consequences now. Because we don't want to be those who would take these warnings and say at the end of our lives, you know, I knew better, but I didn't do. I thank you so much for your attention this morning. I know that this is a sobering idea. It is full of pain for many of us. For some of us, we feel like maybe this doesn't apply to us. Maybe we're younger. Maybe we're single. But the warning, the challenge is there for all of us. That if we're not growing as we should and focused as we should, Satan is lurking. Temptations will come and we have choices to make. So I encourage you to be alert 
and to be focused on those things. And if we can help you to draw closer to your spouse, closer to God in any way, we want to do that. This is the time that we have set aside to offer the invitation for those who are here and who are ready to give their lives to the Lord for the first time being baptized into Christ, having their sins washed away. Or if you're here and you have some need, some thing that you need to make known to this congregation we can help you with, this is the time for you. Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.